Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. And thanks so much for joining us for an hour of science. We have some really interesting guests coming into the studio a little bit later. We're going to be talking about all things science with them, but also about some of the gender issues that are currently being faced in the world of science, science funding, science publishing, science everything. In this studio with me now is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm feeling very positive about the chats today. I'm looking oh, yeah. forward to learning some science, having some rigorous discussion with our guests. I think it's going to be a great show. It's going to be all about solutions. Good morning, Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I, uh, I had a really exciting thing happen this week. I was speaking at a meeting about, I was actually talking about science communication, um, and I used an example that I'd actually used from the radio show. And afterwards, I was talking to one of the people in the audience who went, oh, you know, I was hoping to hear a different one because I was listening to that example on the podcast. <laughs> and it is always fantastic to just run into people that are listeners that listen to our pod- podcast or the show regularly. And we- it was just really, really nice to meet a listener like that who said they really loved the show and in the entire morning lineup. See, I can't listen to the podcast anymore because my son realized that at the very start I do an intro on the podcast, it's not what people hear when they listen live, and it's got some background music that makes it sound like a bit of a rapper kind of thing going on, and he just keeps playing it repeatedly in the car to mess with me, and so I can't, I cannot listen to it now. Well, I can, but I've got to fast forward, so, you know. Stacey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in here, in the studio at last. Yeah, it's nice to be here, we're um, battling a few respiratory hours. Elements back at home, but we're all clear now. So good Very to good. be here. Yeah, I, I, I want someone to come in one day and talk about you know, like yeah, I'm battling a broken leg, <laughs> as opposed to all these other viral things that are everywhere all the time. I uh, know we're talking about it more now. Maybe we should. Uh, yeah, no, it's good, good, good to talk about it. Good to share. No stigma in having a, a, a respiratory <laughs> infection. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got the after. You know, the, the sort of rib cage sort of discomfort from coughing too uh-huh. much. That's like, and I want to, I want to call it, you know, just to sore muscles. But I know it's just because uh, I'm getting older. Old man. What, what's that? Old man. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't catch that one. Jesus, get nasty. Uh, okay, let's jump into some news. Uh, Dr. Linden, let's start with you. Okay, well, this was a story that attracted my attention a few days ago. I had to double check and make sure that it was an actual news piece, that it wasn't a new um, B-grade horror film. <laughs> and I'm very glad that our show is being broadcast at a nice sunny time, and I apologise to anybody who's listening to the podcast later at night, because the story that attracted my attention this week is about dead spiders being turned into robots. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was a new study that was published. It was done by a group of uh, mechanical engineers at Rice University in Texas. And the whole paper, like the whole research idea came about because they were cleaning up their lab one day and they came across a dead spider. And you know when spiders die, they curl up into a little ball these engineers were like, oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. I wonder why spiders do that. Our spider legs work differently to our limbs. They don't have uh, muscles that expand and contract. They only use muscles to kind of contract their legs in and they use a hydraulic system to push their legs out, right? The blood pumps out and that allows them to extend their legs. But these engineers, they thought, oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder if we could uh, make a spider do that. After it had passed on. Oh, boy. I wonder if we could make use of that hydraulic system. So they got some wolf spider corpses. They um, euthanized them in cold temperatures. And then I'm sure it was a bit more fancy than this, but the way that it was described when I read about it was they super glued a syringe to the back of the spider and then they puffed little bits of air into the spider body. And lo and behold, the legs came out. And then when they released the air... The arms contracted back in. And so they've created this robotic gripper made of a spider body. They've also created a brand new word, necrobotics. Necrobotics. Love it. Love it. You might have to get Gracie back to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) 
And so what I – like, this is fascinating. They were able to – they did it with a few different uh, bodies and one was able to, you know, pick up things about a thousand times before it started to show wear and tear. And spider bodies are quite strong and so it could lift 130% of its body weight and, you know, insects can do all sorts of amazing things. And so these guys – what I – particularly found hilarious about this study is that the, it got picked up by a lot of media organizations as you can imagine it's just there's a lots of different fun ways to talk about this story but um Faye the lead researcher she's in she is um interviewed in quite a few of these pieces and in some of them she's saying yeah you know we get inspired by nature all the time and this could have applications for camouflaged grippers that can be used in other studies in nature and things and oh maybe now we can use this to understand how spiders work a little bit more but I kind of think the researchers just thought you know what do you reckon we could give this a go let's this just see cool. yeah. let's yeah. just see if we could do it <laughs> you know and, and they've been watching that is it called Robot Wars you know what's that show that reality show where they fight with the robots like, I'd just like to see someone come in with, rather than a big contraption, just a huntsman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like an Aussie hunt, good old Aussie huntsman yep. from the back of the shed, wired up. Take on, <laughs> take this thing on. You can't kill him. Take my dead syringed huntsman. I'm going to have at you. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Necrobotics, huh? Necrobotics. I'll watch keep, out. Watch keep out, an eye out late for at that night. one. Dr. Ray. Uh, nothing so, so cool and gruesome, but actually kind of cool. So, uh, I think uh, earlier this year, towards the end of last year, Dr. Shane had talked about fiber optics sitting on the bottom of the seafloor. They're used for communication and high-speed internet. And he was talking about how researchers had found another use for them. That because all all these fiber optics are sitting there, they were at the time used to to sense seismic events. Because fiber optics, you you shine light through them, but when they get small stresses, even nanometer scale stresses, on them that attenuates how the light is reflected, and you can use that to sense in this case, earthquakes. Well, some researchers from the University of Science and Technology in Norway have used um, fiber optics on the bottom of a sea floor, fiber optic cables, to do something different. They're eavesdropping on whales. Hmm. And so they're listening for whales. And this, cool. is, this is in an archipelago near Svalbard where they used about 120-kilometer long uh, uh, cable, which went down a couple hundred couple hundred meters at least uh and they were actually able they were looking for both blue sea fin and humpback whales um they were actually able to differentiate them and uh they could actually figure out height and they even kind of correlated their sightings with whale watching sightings so they're like oh i think that's a blue whale and people were seeing blue whales at the time um and and i just found it fascinating so that they there was also a term in there i hadn't heard before even from dr shane and it was they said we're using dark fiber and i went okay oh yes i love dark fiber from the dark, dark web yeah, no, yeah. it's and fiber with no light in it's, it it's fiber yeah oh. it's fiber with no light in it cuz i was actually wondering even when dr shane talked about scientists using it for seismic measuring activities and for whales i'm like aren't they like trying to shine light through this all the time to communicate so how do they have time to sense for earthquakes or even whales well, as it turns out, they lay a lot of redundancy when they put these fiber optic cables mm. down. So there's quite a number of them that aren't used. So they just used one cable in this fiber bundle to actually sense for whales. And so on shore, they put something called an interrogator at the end of it, which flashes light and measures the pulses back. But because you have, you have a sensor every four kilometers, you're actually able to position and locate the whale because you have a number of different places to see the whale from or, or to sense where the whale is from. And basically the pressure wave from the whale's sound gets converted into a mechanical stress in the light, which is then can be converted back to a sound. Now, fortunately, the authors also put up on supplemental information some of the whale songs or some of the whale sensing. So Dr. Shane, I believe, has a queued up uh, 30-second bit of a whale. Play the tape, DJ. Play the tape, DJ. Here we go. <laughs> So that's a blue whale. I thought so. <laughs> now, wait for the humpback. No, no, no. no. It, it, so it, 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 they're not singing. They're just clicking to each other. Yeah. That's cool. So this is, this is sound, mechanical changes to a structure that holds light back to sound. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of oh, cool stuff. Very cool. That's kind of cool stuff. And, um, and so why the scientists were so excited about this technology is... It's everywhere now. It's already laid. It's already distributed. And the other way to track whales is hydrophones, 
hmm. which is effective but way more expensive and harder to maintain than this. So this this becomes an opportunity. This was in the Arctic, but there's no reason it can't be used in the Antarctic as well. And tracking whales on the ends of the Earth are kind of very important ways because in the Arctic you see a lot of effects from climate change happen faster. Yep. So tracking whale change there becomes more important. So fiber optics, great for communication, high-speed internet, earthquakes, and cheap way to track whales. Yep. Fiber optics are always going to keep me uh, excited. They're, yeah. they're amazing things. So here's, here's something to remember with fiber optics, right? They're about 125 microns wide pieces of glass that are used so that's about twice the width of your hair and that's a piece of glass you imagine that's really fragile right if you coat it in a a polymer essentially which is what we do to protect them it becomes pretty much as strong as fishing line like if i give you a piece and you try and snap it between your two hands you won't be able to do it so you take that piece of glass that is like so fine like this fine straw and can just snap you know so easily in the wind coat it with some plastic and it becomes super strong like fishing line and you can bend it Cool Very stuff. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, we could uh, just do an hour on fiber optics, but yeah. uh, Stacy, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I came across an epidemiological study uh, published a couple of weeks ago, um, looking at disparities or differences uh, by race and sex among patients with heart failure requiring a, um, a cardiac implant. Right. Hmm. So the um, cardiac device that they were looking at is called left ventricular assist device. Um, so it's used for people with um, quite advanced forms of heart disease, and it's often for people with who might be on a wait list for a heart transplant, um, and it helps um, uh, push the blood through the chambers of the heart and across out to the to the rest of the body. And these devices can be life saving for people um, who who really who really need it, um, who pot- yeah potentially are waiting for a heart transplant. Now um, in the US, there's about three thousand of the um, devices implanted per year. Um, the study was conducted in the US, but um, probably markedly fewer um, uh, received here in Australia. But um, the need for these devices is increasing because heart failure is inc- increasing globally. We've got ageing population. Mm. Um, it's increasing, but disproportionately um, the rates are increasing among women um, and black people uh, compared to um, yeah, men and 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 uh, non, non-blacks or, or uh, people or white people. And uh, the same is, is true in Australia. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have uh, higher rates of heart failure than non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and similarly women have higher rates of heart failure. So already there's some disparities in the incidence mm. of disease. Um, so uh, also the outcomes are worse for these people, and um, previous research has suggested that they're less likely to receive advanced therapies for cardiac care. So at the beginning of this paper we're already painting a pretty bad picture um and so the researchers wanted to quantify those disparities specifically for this left ventricular assist devices so what they did is they looked at um administrative data uh with medical claims history of a cohort of about three hundred thousand people and what they had to do first was um uh, calculate a sort of a, a propensity score for left ventricular assist d- devices so this essentially assigns a number or a probability um uh, to for each patient that quantifiably uh, um analyzes like the need so mm. people with a really high mm. propensity score they really need a cardiac yep. assisted device people with low the clinical indication is less clear um and so with people with low propensity um this is where like clinical judgment uh, subject sort of mm. assessments required so it's less clear cut and it's sort of down to this this uh, yeah, subjective assessment so that's important as we turn to the results right so um, what the researchers found that overall black patients were three percent less likely to receive this device compared to white patients and women were eight percent less likely to receive the device than men and um, interestingly these disparities widened when looking at patients who had a low propensity for implant so um, so this you know is when clinical indication is less clear and that clinical judgments coming into play um so it it was particularly pronounced for um black black patients um so they were five percent less likely to receive the implant now that was after adjustment for clinical characteristics comorbidities socioeconomic status you know whether they lived close to a, a medical center that provided these devices so all those characteristics they're not accounting for disparities right. there's something else going on so something's going on so when the person of color comes in there and they and they're a woman does it, is it eight plus three there or is it you know like how how bad is that yeah no so um i i don't i, I think so um the differences between um black women and white me- women um weren't 
weren't as diverse. Right. But, yeah. But yeah. it's... But still, there's a big change. There's, I mean, uh, there's a big change. Yeah. Even yeah. a few percentile points, when you're talking about, like you said, the cohort's 300,000 people, yeah. you're talking about very large numbers of people who are... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the authors are hypothesizing that, well, trying to understand, well, you know, what's happening here? If we can't explain it by all of these other, um, other, you know, social determinants mm. of health or other sort of factors, they're hypothesizing that it's unconscious or conscious bias on the yep. part of the clinicians that's driving some of these changes. So, um, you know, these types of biases have been shown to impact clinical care across a variety mm. of settings. And so this, you know, this paper is just looking at implant medicine. Um, but, you know, it really just um, uh, provides that evidence that there's, there's beyond social determinants and clinical indications, there's um, considerable biases that's contributing yeah. to sort of racial and, um, and systematic sort of uh, sexual biases in, in, in clinical care. Clinical care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing too there is that it's um, most extreme at the lower end. And so if you then port that across to all other forms of clinical interaction – where many of them are relatively minor by comparison, mm. you would expect that bias to be enhanced there too. Exactly. Um, and that's, that's the worrying part. Like if it was just, you know, everyone who walks in with a cardiac arrest is pretty much the same because they're up the high end. Yes. Maybe. Yes. Um, but as you, you know, you go in just with some back pain, not so bad, then that's yes. when the biases really kick in yeah. when it's sort of um, more of a on-the-day call. Yeah. It's mm. very telling and that they were suggesting that perhaps, um, <coughs> you know, in clinical review meetings, maybe we don't need to share sex and race um, right. so that you're, you know, not, um, you know, there's no opportunity for those implicit biases to, yeah. to start uh, informing decision making. Interesting stuff. Disturbing. All right. Uh, you guys are good at quizzes? No. <laughs> Is that the right answer? <laughs> it is for me because I remember the last time I got a, an answer right at one of these quizzes. It was 2001. It was in Marysville, the government function. Very excited about that. Um, we won oh, because of my answer. So it go. stuck with me. And I haven't gone back since. I don't want to leave the high. <laughs> but look, if you're into quizzes, folks, the National Science Quiz is being held at Fed Square tonight at 7.30 um, at the Edge Theatre. I think it's currently the Deacon Edge. I walked past it yesterday. But it's the edge there, you know, the nice one, the atrium is beautiful. Um, so if you want to get involved, you can either go or you can attend online. So it's one of the Ooh, hybrids of the events, which is pretty cool. Uh, it'll be fun. There's some friends of the show being on, on there. And, you know, you can test your scientific knowledge, play along live, and there's some cash prizes and so forth you can win. So if you are interested, go to nationalsciencequiz.com.au and you can register there. I was just down at Fed Square yesterday at the light um, at the ACMI, the Australian Centre for Music Image Gallery for the Light Festival, or the Light Exhibit that they had there. It was It was pretty impressive, actually. So I suggest if people are interested in that sort of stuff, I'm optical physics guy, so I was like, ooh, <laughs> a light festival. <laughs> you could come for the light and then stay for the science, the science course. Yeah, yeah. well, there's um, there's a lot of stuff down to do. So um, And, yeah, there was many people, actually, in the city. I was, like, you know, pleasantly surprised at how easily I parked. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, now, worth getting along to. Anyway, the National Science Quiz on tonight. Have a look at it if you're interested, folks. It starts at 7.30. We're going to take a break for some music, and we're coming back with our two special guests for today in just a minute. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with me now is Dr. Olga Panagia Topolu. I got it right, didn't I, Olga? Perfect. Olga is a senior lecturer in anatomy and developmental biology at Monash University. And also, we have Associate Professor Bridget Simple, who is from the Department of Neuroscience at Monash University Central Clinical School. Hi, Bridget. Hi, thank you for having me. Good to have you both in. Now, we're going to start off today by talking a bit about your work, first of all, and then we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about some of the, the current issues around gender and funding and everything else that's sort of troubling and difficult for, for women in science. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that after the break. But Olga, I want to start off with your work because you work in, a, in, in an area that like, I hadn't heard a lot about, but it relates to jaw fractures and how we deal with jaw fractures. So first of all, I mean, are there a lot of jaw fractures going on at the moment? Yeah, actually, actually quite a lot. It's more than 40% of people that have any sort of facial trauma in Australia, uh, they end up getting a jaw fracture. And most of the reasons that people break their jaws in Australia is because of assault. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and is this 
predominantly in young males or correct yeah. yeah mainly young males and uh, unfortunately there is a little bit of a correlation between uh, alcohol uh, uh, abuse i won't say consumption because it's sunday and people will go to the pub later <laughs> so yep. it, it does relate with uh, alcohol consumption uh, abuse and uh, drug abuse yeah. yeah and in terms of the the sorts of work that's done when someone has a jaw fracture i mean this is something i just think about this you know radio guy and i think this sounds horrific but like what what's going on there this is like a broken bone in your arm so so what do we have to do so usually you end up uh, at the hospital Mm. and uh, the surgeons will have to put little mini plates and screws to put the two bones back together the problem with all of these uh, implants is that some of them haven't been uh, haven't gone through clinical trials so sometimes you may get uh, an implant inside your jaw to fit to, to put the bones together but then we don't know how these implants will impact on the way you chew afterwards when you're uh into rehabilitation and that is the major issue that people have post-operative complications such as a lot of pain uh, or sometimes the bone dies uh, and has to be removed from this area Uh, and also you get a lot of uh, uh, dysfunction during chewing you cannot chew like you used to chew before you break your jaw right when you say implants are we talking about chunks of metal like you put in your leg or are we talking about artificial bone or actual donated bone well there are Different ways to fix a broken jaw, uh, but uh, the technique that is mostly used in the clinics at the moment is by using mini plates, Mm. um, and then they're fixed into the bone using screws, which are very similar to those you use to fix uh, your arm if you break it. Um, Sometimes, uh, depending in cancer cases, when you have to remove a whole piece of bone, you may uh, need to use uh, a whole joint prosthesis, or you may need to use artificial bone. Uh, but there are major complications with this approach. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know I, I've only ever broken uh, what, one bone that I got dealt with and one that I just ignored and used my old old guy strategy of hope it'll go away, <laughs> which it worked, um, but it was a toe, to be fair, so they don't do anything. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the pieces of advice you get is, you know, you don't use it or move it or, you know, stress it. But your jaw, you, you're constantly using it. How do you – so what, what's the equivalent there for someone who has a broken jaw? Well, you have to, to, to re- actually science and research here, it's quite important. You need to read the research and, uh, and, and find out which is the best side that you should chew when right. you are into rehabilitation and you still have the plates and the screws into your mouth. We did publish a study um, earlier uh, this year and we found for uh, specific fractures on the jaw, uh, it's not very advisable to chew on the opposite to the fracture side. Wow. It's better to chew on the same side. With the fracture, which can be a little bit more painful, uh, but if you chew from the other side, then uh, your jaw twists a lot around the area of the fracture, and this can um, cause uh, discontinuity in the bone healing, and you can have bone healing in, uh, uh, problems later on. See, that's why we need research, because yeah, everyone's exactly. going to do the exact opposite until exactly. you tell them it's, it's not helpful. So, so does that mean that at some point in the rehab, it's better to be off a liquid diet and actually do some moderate chewing, but on the area that's that's where the breakage is? Yeah, based on what we found is that it is important that you continue chewing, but uh, of course, you're not going to bite on that delicious steak. You have to take it easy. Uh, and it's better to start using the area with the fracture. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, some of the research you're doing is also on the, the, the fixing, like and how you do that, because I... I don't know. I want to say super glue. <laughs> you know, it, whenever someone talks about drilling and, and screws and things, I think, oh my goodness. Um, are we talking about you know, power drills in, in surgery? Like, what, how do you refix this? What's involved? Well, you do use drills, and uh, but there are very smart drills, and uh, they can stop drilling when there is a blood vessel or a nerve around the area. <laughs> oh, great. They're very gentle and, and nice and tidy. Uh, and then you put the, the, the screws and uh, the plates on, and uh, that's the thing. You have to be very careful on how you orientate these plates and mini screws mm. because it's not just the material, but also the, the, the way you place them into the bone. It will change the mechanics. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it is a process. And can- of course, you get this done by qualified surgeons. Yeah. yeah. Can you map this now? I know, you know, like these days when you go to the dentist, they can do one of those three, three-dimensional three x-rays and map everything out. And I think, you know, a couple of years back, I had a cap done and they 3D printed it off my own. You know, like I was like, whoa, this is – I wasn't expecting this. Um, like, do they do that now? Do they use that sort of mapping and tomography and work out exactly what the shapes and shapes Absolutely. And this is exactly what we used for our research, apart from some uh, uh, in vivo experiments that we mm. did. We're using uh, 
techniques that engineers are using to build aeroplanes and cars, and then we use 3D models and 3D prints to study how the job behaves uh, biomechanically uh, post-fracture fixation. Yeah, I want to I see the footage of uh, a patient being told that. You know, and we were using this with Boeing just last week, but we brought it in for your head. Yeah, like because that look that sounds wild. That's wild stuff. Thank you, Olga. Olga, Thank um, you, now uh, Bridget. We're going to talk about kids and concussion because this is, this must be. I mean, we've got so many kids doing so many sports these days. Everyone's over over committed, you know. Yeah, doing, I mean, yeah, you're not a good parent if your kid isn't doing seven sports a week. Is that the? I think that's the new rule. That's the norm. I think we used to get chucked out the backyard for football and our bikes when I was a kid, a long time ago. Um, but there's there's so many injuries that are that are occurring, and with concussions, I mean, it's it's very difficult, I suppose, for clinicians to determine how bad a concussion is in a given scenario. Tell us a bit about what happens there with kids and their presentations and what that looks like. Well, concussions, how they present, is incredibly variable. This is one of the problems, and mm. it's really dependent on symptoms. We don't have good imaging methods for concussion because con- concussions, by definition, they're mild traumatic brain injuries, so they yep. don't show symptom of signs on an MRI or a CT scan. They're kind of below the threshold of what would cause right. immediate visible brain damage. Um, so it's really up to symptoms, and, and one of the issues, particularly with sports people playing sports is that they may not necessarily be open about what their symptoms are they want to get back on the Mm. field um so i think probably symptoms of concussion are underreported um but you know with kids a concussion symptom might be headaches it might be you know loss of vision it could be dizziness um all these Mm. kind of things so very kind of broad symptoms yeah and even things like depression can be symptoms of concussion am i Concussion, more right there? Yeah, more long term. Um, yeah. So we kind of what I described symptoms are kind of for the acute injury, um, and then, but we certainly know that repeat, particularly repeated concussions are, seem to be associated with an increased risk of depression, anxiety, um, a lot of other outcomes. Long-term. Yeah. Now, now, reading the material you sent through to me, I was surprised to read that epilepsy is one of the potential flow-on effects of concussion. I, I wasn't aware of that. How common is that and how does that work? Yeah, more so more severe injuries. Um, yep. the, the evidence around concussions is really not there for epilepsy. It's more for moderate and more severe traumatic mm-hmm. brain injuries. Right. Um, but yeah, epilepsy is one of the major outcomes chronically after a TBI, so a traumatic mm. brain injury. Um, about 10% of children who have a brain injury will develop epilepsy and it could be months, even years post-injury. So up to 10 years post-injury, you might have your first epileptic seizure and that's actually related to the brain injury that occurred many years wow. prior. And, and this is now just correct me if I'm wrong, but epilepsy is also something that we can't see on an MRI. So that kind of misfiring of electrical signals through the brain isn't something we can just sort of image, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So you would need to look at um, the EEG of yep. these people. Yep. yep. And are there any indicators early on that children are at high risk of this? This is um, a great spot for research. This is some of the research that we're looking at. So we do know there are some risk factors. So severity of injury, the more severe an injury you have, the more likely you would be to develop epilepsy. Um, Penetrating injuries, so injuries that impact, you know, fracture the skull. Um, So we know that the risk of epilepsy is higher in military populations who tend to have gunshot wounds and that type of thing that penetrates the skull. Um, But we really don't have a good understanding of why two individuals with the same brain injury, why one will develop epilepsy and one will not. Mm. It's interesting. And is there any sort of way in which we can sort of be preventative, you know, in terms of, you know, someone comes in with, with a concussion, be it mild or, or moderate, I hate using the word mild these days, it's kind of <laughs> word's been dirtied up, right? Um, but, you know, let's say it not as bad as moderate. Yeah. Um, but they come in with this and, you know, they have a variety of symptoms, Some sometimes no symptoms virtually at all, right? I mean, you, you, you get some kids who you know, have very few symptoms. Yeah. Is there something that we should be doing to sort of prevent that sort of, coming through? Yeah, it's a really good question. So what's been trialled for many years is giving anti-seizure drugs within the first couple of weeks post-injury and and a lot of hospitals kind of give that prophylactically, gives Mm. anti-seizure drugs. And they tend to be great for reducing acute post-injury seizures, which can happen and can kind of help further the brain damage. But we know now there's there's no evidence that giving those anti-epileptic or anti-seizure drugs early post-injury, that has no effect on chronic development of post-traumatic epilepsy. So we really need to develop, or we need a better understanding of why epilepsy is developing in some individuals to really then be able to target that therapeutically. Yeah, and do we have any ideas as to what would be a good 
you know, good pathway there? Um, it's a good question. So we, my lab at the moment is really interested in the inflammatory response right. in the brain. So, you know, we know if you hit your your knee, you, you get yep. this inflamed response. Same thing happens with your head and in the brain. Um, the brain used to be, we used to think that it was separate from the immune system, but it really has its own kind of immune system yeah. and it interacts with the peripheral immune system in your blood. Um, and so we know that this inflammatory response occurs and this can happen over, over time after injury. And we think that helps, or actually doesn't help, but perpetuates the excitability of the brain which can lead to a greater propensity for seizures yeah how much is the word concussion problematic in all of this because you know we have this sort of you know i guess this historical use of the term where it was kind of something you just shook off and you know a couple of days later you were fine is, is that getting in the way of proper clinical care and, and presentations and so forth yeah, possibly. I think there's still a lot of confusion around that term. Um, I think we tend to use it to think it's more mild than maybe it is and, yep. and to kind of brush it off, like you say. Um, you know, we, I think we don't really understand still what threshold of an impact has to occur to, yeah. have, to cause symptoms and be problematic. So, you know, there's increasing evidence that even what we think of as like sub-concussive injuries or right. below the threshold to cause symptoms, if you do that enough times, that could yeah. also have um, a lot yeah. of potential damage. And we've, we've seen a lot of that in US football and Absolutely. so forth where it's been that's been exposed as being particularly problematic and here yeah. too i think it's uh yeah. <clears throat> i try and keep my head uh, away from moving objects or keep my moving head away from still objects Probably or, a good idea. <laughs> or, the, or the two together which is even worse all right we're going to take a short break Bridget, and we, what, oh. what department were you in uh, neuroscience at monash university at monash, yeah. we're going to take a short break folks and we will be back in just a moment to talk more about some of the gender issues facing researchers in australia and worldwide triple r Welcome back, people. You're listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me, if you weren't listening earlier, we have Olga Panangian Topolu and Bridget Semple, both from Monash University, actually. This yeah. happens every now and then. Yeah. I accidentally get <laughs> everyone from the same place. Um, very different areas of research, though. And the reason I originally invited you in was not because your research was interesting at all, actually. It was because you were, you were, we were talking a bit over social media about some of the issues faced by women in terms of research, especially when they have young children. So, um, Olga, you first, like, just tell us a little bit about your experience. I mean, what, why is this a, an issue for you now? What's happened over the last few years with you? Well, I had a lot of medical uh, disruptions uh, with my career. I had mm. a duct carcinoma in situ and I needed surgery and then I had more invasive surgery. So I had to take time off work to deal uh, with this. Mm. And then uh, I had an IVF pregnancy, which again had complications. So uh, I had to take more time off to deal with that. <laughs> yep. uh, and then I was very grateful and lucky to have my beautiful son. Um, uh, but And I, I am on maternity leave at the moment, but... Uh, uh, unfortunately, if you're an academic, even when you're on parental leave, you, you still have to do work to keep your research going. Yeah. And your, your head, my head of department is absolutely brilliant, um, a mother herself, and very understanding and very supportive of my situation. And she does want me to focus on my baby and enjoy yep. this time. But unfortunately, my head is not going to be sitting on the promotion panel, so she's mm. not going to be reviewing one of my grants. And who's writing papers for you while you're, while you're away? Well, I'm writing them. My son has written <laughs> one paper and one grant with me so far. So. <laughs> How's it going? What's his success rate? He's pretty good. He's, He's pretty, pretty good? good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting, though. Like, in, in, you know, in the discussions during the week, you indicated that you were you actually had your laptop there while you are in, you're, you're in the hospital and you had to yeah. do work while you in the hospital. We had to finish a grant. And I had my laptop with me after I gave birth. Yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. Uh, but then we realized that this was not very feasible, so <laughs> yeah. I had to listen to the doctor's advice and postpone it. But again, the, the grant we were submitting was for a U.S. funding yep. body, and we had the ability to submit on November rather than June. Right. So I'm able to do that. That's why. Um, yeah, there's some decided, opportunities exactly, there. Exactly. Yeah. And Bridget, what about yourself? Tell us about your situation. Uh, so I'm a mother. I've got two little kids at home. Yep. Um, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, so I took two periods of six months maternity leave in the last five years. Right. Yep. Um, so I guess I'm at the situation now I've recovered or I'm recovering from that career break, <laughs> as I yeah. get asked to phrase it, um, about writing grants at the moment, trying to, I guess, cope with that career break. Yeah. I think um, for, for all the listeners out there who are not aware of some of this, I mean, one of the things that is, is very potent in any researcher's career is you get on this conveyor belt and you start running 
and it is highly competitive, especially in Australia where our funding systems um, are so limited. And if you step off the conveyor for five minutes, you're you're in trouble. Now, you know, Bridget, so what happened with you when you were, you know, off that conveyor for a period? Like what was going on with your research and your and the part that has to keep going? So the first um, maternity leave period I took, I was very junior. Um, mm-hmm. So I, yep. basically the research stopped for that six-month right. period. Yep. Um, there was no one else kind of to continue on going. Um, and so it took quite a while to get started back up again when I did return. Um, the second period I took, I was in a lab head position, so kind of a new mm, yeah. uh, lab head. And so I did have kind of some students under me and some people to try and keep the research going. But um, obviously then you, you need to stay in touch with that team. So I, I did the best I could to make sure they all had kind of other support people. But, you know, I'm still the, – the buck stops with me in terms of, you know, a bit accountability for different experiments yeah. and, and keeping things going. So still having to write the papers and write the grants. No one else can step into that role. Yeah. Linda? It's really fascinating as someone who is uh, in between both of you, just about to go on my second round of maternity leave. I've been quite, uh, well, I would I would say impressed, I suppose. I know there are, there's a long, long way to go, but there are lots of supports that are existing. And we said at the start of the show that we were going to talk about solutions today. And I guess I'm wondering with you, Bridget, how you found the support that was provided, either financial or kind of structural, and whether you think Australian universities are doing okay there or how you think there's room for improvement? Oh, that's a good good question. (laughs) There's definitely room for improvement. I I think we could learn a lot from what's happening in different parts of the world. So, you know, I talk about how my research had to really stop the first time and even the second time. I I lost a lot of that momentum. So, you know, we... With a research career, it's not just mm. about sustained trajectory, it's accelerated trajectory and, you know, just trying to keep up with my peers who don't have those types of disruptions. And I think there's lots of places around the world where they've shown, you know, people at the universities or funding agencies can fund people to kind of step in and help keep that research going. So a, a, a research assistant or some sort of manager that can come in. And I think if we had systems like that, that would be a huge help. It's a shame that the time of your life where your career is really accelerating in research is the same time of your life Absolutely. where your family is beginning <laughs> That's but really I certainly wouldn't advocate that people put it off either. Yeah. So, oh, I, I was just going to say it's very bizarre also the, the turn of phrase that you're recovering from yeah. your career disru- yeah. disruption. <laughs> so, you know, that it's very binary that you're, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for six months you're caring for a child and then all of a sudden it stops and you're back to, um, you know, expected to be back to um, your life sort of pre, pre-children. But it, yeah. that's quite ridiculous because you know children exist in a continuum and hopefully they're going to live with you for many many years Mm. to come and I I just sort of wondered um, you know how universities can start sort of shifting their language and their narrative uh, from that sort of very discreet oh it's a a, a discreet career disruption it's not like it's it's both for um, women and men and other partners in, involved in child caring. Um, it, it's disrupting our lives, I guess, and we need to um, start sort of adjusting the way we work, um, uh, taking into account that it's it's fluid, and we need to yeah. you know ha- you know have supportive environments in academia to enable that to to continue to occur. Mm. Now, one of the things I want to unpack a bit here too is that there's sort of two parts to this problem in a sense. Or there's probably thirty, but there's two big ones. One is how how you're treated internally within your institutions and the institution of research across the board. The second is the funding agencies and how they go about allocating funding and what that looks like. And I think you know, over the last week there's been some meetings, I think, Bridget, you might have attended some of them with regards to the NH and MRC, looking at how to deal with this, what they call the scissor problem, which is you know this massive disparity between how many men get funded for research and how many women get funded for research and how much and i think you know this is this is a problem that's both within the granting agency but also as as an input condition you know like if if three times as many men apply for grants as women then you've got a problem at the input stage right there then how you deal with them in a non-biased way taking into account the the time that as you say you're you're taking off like and i think this is non-linear right i mean would that be your view i mean olga what, what are your thoughts you take six months off what is it really 
Yeah, it's, it, in reality, it's two years. Right. Because uh, right. it's the time before uh, you have your mm. baby, uh, depending on what type of pregnancy you had, yep. if it had complications. And then it's the time you take off uh, as, as leave, and then the time that you come back. Because when you're on leave, you cannot do experiments, and uh, all of the work in the lab is being left behind, unless you yep. have someone senior running the experiments on your behalf. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we should be clear here to say it's, it's not just with babies. That's a big part of it. It's Absolutely. people with chronic illness. Correct. It's also, I mean, a few of the women I know who've been knocked around the most were the ones who actually didn't have successful pregnancies, and that is almost like ignored from the system completely. completely. Yep. Um, which is real, but there's a, and and there's also carer responsibilities as well. You know, sometimes it's people with elderly parents or parents with dementia. You know, there's all of these things. But it, it seems to me as though our system. Okay, so we're on the grant side of the discussion at the moment, but the, the grant side where the system needs to account for these. Yep. The same people who are assessing the science seem to be assessing this social context of, of what's going on. Is that right? That's right. And the, the, most of these grant schemes, they have a, a like a, a section in there that talks about these career disruptions mm. and kind of all gets lumped together. And then it's really on the onus of the individual reviewers sitting in their lounge room reviewing 20 of these grants in a week you know, 11 o'clock at night to yep. make a judgment on what impact that career issue has had yeah. on, on on that person's career. So, you know, there's this real onus on individual reviewers who are right. not skilled to be doing that. You know, I shouldn't yeah. be able to make a judgment on an, an Olga's situation, um, whereas really it should be a systemic change to try and improve these outcomes. Yeah, in, the, in that, rel- yeah. I understand, the relative to opportunities. Yes. Can you just write, I, I'm not like, I don't look like Dr. Shane, like middle-aged white guy with a whole, can, can you write that? And they so they give you an extra five points? Like, no. no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, it'd be nice. Inter- it would be nice, but it's, you know, what's interesting for me over the last couple of years is I've attended lots of seminars now and, mm. you know, these kind of workshops and, you know, promoting women workshops and how to kind of succeed in science. And a lot of them talk about how to write these sections. So, yeah. you know, Olga and I have chatted about this offline that, you know, I took six months leave. However, you have to have this however phrase. Yeah. Despite this disruption, I have mm. applied for two grants and written three papers and supervised two, two students. So you have to kind of account for, despite you know, despite this break, I've done all this. And, and that's how you kind of show this continued trajectory. So it's, it's almost forbidden to just take six months off right yeah. just in, in inverted commas to, to actually take a maternity leave break yeah it always interests me you know universities are supposed to be the you know the bleeding edge of societal's knowledge but in some of these things they're actually miles behind other yeah. other areas of of the workforce and you know not all areas of workforce are actually very good at this anyway but i think in many cases the research infrastructure is actually really a, a long way behind yeah. i mean I, I had some ideas to throw at you in terms of just let's just fix this today but um we're not going to do that. Um, I mean, one is, and this is something we talked about, this idea of when you take time off, actually having someone come in paid for as a research assistant to back you up. And you may still make some decisions when you're, you know, when you're off. And I, I get that. And some people actually want to do that. So that's, that's reasonable. But not having someone there to actually run things for you is a really big deal. And I just did the numbers. I said, okay, let's say we have someone with a salary of 100000 doing that and you get 0.4 each. I'll give you each 0.4. So that's, you know, $40,000 per person, per new parent a year. You know, for an average university where there's, say, 100, 100 women in the situation, that's $4 million bucks. That's nothing in terms of university budgets. I mean, I only know the sort of range of like the University of Melbourne where I was that's about a $2 billion business. Come on, you know, like it's and, – and I don't see this as a cost. This is an investment. I suggested this sort of model to a few universities. Didn't go anywhere. But I think why – you know, is this something that you think would be really helpful if we just put money behind this and back this? Yeah, absolutely. Because by not putting money in behind it, it's, you know, conveying this idea that we're not worth – retaining in the system right, right? Yep. you know it's a real fight for every individual woman who has any sort of career disruption for any individual of any gender who has a, some sort of disruption yep. in their trajectory to stay in the system you mm. know we wanted to be doing research not you know some people do choose alternative careers and that's fabulous for those alternative careers um but you know people being forced out because of lack of funding because they've taken different life choices is just not it's not good for science which is not good for society yeah the thing that gets me about this kind of situation is that it's still like, right, how can we throw more money at this problem? How can we throw more programs? How can we get you to go more workshops, to more training, to do more women in STEM stuff, to bring the women to the level that exists in the current system? But the fact is that the system is changing for men and women, for people of all genders, that more people want to have more balance and that academia less and less 
is being dominated by old white men that have wives at home so they can do whatever they want seven days a week. I know that's a really large generalization mm. but that is no longer what the ac- what academia oh. should represent but how yeah. long is it going to take for that to shift do you think well and i think you know you're right about that i mean for me i i would always first of all go after the biggest part of the problem which is this massive dis- you know discrepancy between the amount of time that women especially with, with young families have and their their capability to get grants in a competitive way even women without children get um dis- yeah. disadvantaged in lots of ways oh well, and there's that baseline disadvantage that's there straight off the bat um but you know once you once you start a family once you start doing that it begins that much harder and so i think they're the ones where putting money into the system and absolutely not putting them on more committees and that in fact one of the things that i would do immediately is say okay in an average week for a teaching and research academic my estimation is always you spend about two days doing research and the other three is teaching and bullshit that's that's the model so take all the those last three da- days out and just remove them because there's only one part of that equation that keeps you on the conveyor and it's the research so back those people that that's how i got the number of 0.4 back those people up with full replacement from research assistants of reasonable quality i mean we're not talking about junior people here you know probably level b's or above and give them that time back and i think if you do that in a very active way it's you know it's it's at least keeping you connected in a way that many i mean you know look i i I know i've got a couple of people working through my charity at the moment who are researchers and one of the mums she went on maternity leave in the year she was going to take three months and i in my head i just said a year right because you just don't know and so we put everything around it to make sure it worked if you don't do that they get knocked off the conveyor and they can't do it so i think these sorts of things matter. I mean, one of the other things for me that really is a problem is grant applications, yeah. both the length of them and the timing. Is it? I mean, you know, if it doesn't work out for you, it's just bad luck, right? I mean, the timing. Is that is that your experience, Olga? Yeah, with the Australian funding bodies, you just get one shot. Mm. I mean, if you are sick the day of the submission, then that's it. You're bad done. Luck. You have to wait another year. And you get it if you reviewers' comments and you respond to these comments, but the person that will re-review your grant is not the same person that mm. gave you the comments first time. So there is no way forward. Whereas in some of the U.S. funding bodies, you get to respond to the reviewers' comments and then your grants go back to the same people and they continue evaluating your response yeah. to, the, to the comments and then they help you improve your grant. Yeah. And I think this is what we're lacking here in Australia. Of course, we need more money because uh, at the moment with 9% of the grants going up, it's a hundreds game. Yeah. You're trying to nitpicking other people's grants for them not to go up for your grant to succeed. Yeah, and I think that's where one of the myths around this um, is important to note is that often when people talk about doing things in the grant system to benefit women applying, they make the argument that that will lower the standard of the grants being funded. But I'm pretty sure this week, actually, some data was shown by the NHMRC that indicated that wasn't the case because they only fund the absolute cream anyway. So even if you drill down a little bit, you're still well and truly into the high quality you know excellent projects is I mean, that that would have come up this week Bridget? yeah that's correct yeah. so it's a seven point scale for a lot of these schemes mm, within yeah. HMRC. um and the funding cutoff is just a certain percent like certain line so i think um that the evidence this week they've done some modeling around kind of the most extreme intervention mm. they were looking at was going to lower the funding cutoff by 0.15 of a point so you know it's it's Wait, a bit, who cares? Yeah. it's it's, <laughs> it's already people who are scored as excellent yep. um and so these are outstanding grants that we're just not funding. And I guess by comparison, so we're, we're at a 9% success rate in Australia at the moment in these schemes. And I think America, a lot of the schemes in America, about 20, 25, yeah. up to 30% in the UK. UK. Yeah. So you know, out of all the grants, so every year, you know, 9 out of 10 Australians are not Australian researchers. They're spending their Easter holidays and their Christmas holidays Absolutely. writing grant applications. Yeah. They know yeah. probably aren't going to get up. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's where the, part of that issue is that when, when you have to do them. So you know, if you do have kids, even school-age kids, and they're right at the end of the school holidays, you know, I think that that's a that's a tough time, and they could they could really deal with that better by having multiple grant periods. And I would put strong, you know, if it's me, I'm a bit, you know, I like to restrict things as much as possible, um, so that people don't game the system. But if you had four, for example, entry points a year, you know, you're not allowed to enter all four. You know, you can maybe enter every third one or something. So you can put restrictions in there, but it means that if you did have young kids or you were sick or you're dealing with, you know, I've no 
parents in 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 aged care, whatever it might be, you could skip around that doesn't kill you for a whole year. It gives you some sort of um, some sort of reasonable entry point back into the system, and yeah. And this system is not friendly for postdocs as well because mm. uh, we are lab heads and we depend on funding to appoint uh, young researchers to come and join our teams. When these people have to stay for one year uh, and, and outside academia and being unemployed, they will likely leave the country and move somewhere else or yeah. they will change careers. Yeah. So we need to do better for the earlier career states people as well, not just for ourselves. Indeed. All right, we're going to take a very short break for a couple of very important station announcements and we'll be back in a second. Triple R. Uh, we're back, folks. We're talking about all things science and why you would never want to do it as a job, but you should because it's awesome. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of good aspects. But but look, before we go, we only have a couple of minutes left. But Bridget, like, if you had a bit of a magic wand, I know this is one of these loaded questions. But if if there were two or three things that you would change right now, and it can't be more money, you can't say that because we, we know. Um, what I mean, what would you like to see shift immediately in in the research sort of scheme? Uh, greater acknowledgement of different career options and different mm-hmm. career choices and life choices and that, you know, v- greater valuing of, of people at all stages of life and, and their contributions to science, that yep. the more diversity we have in terms of people doing science, the more diversity of ideas, and that's only going to be better for the science. Yeah, excellent. Olga? More support for early career scientists, not only women, also ma- many, many male academics face similar issues with uh, with females. Uh, more support to people with career disruptions and more guidance mm-hmm. on to help these people to get back into the system when they're back from leave. Uh, I think this is very important. And of course, the institutions in Australia are doing a great job in uh, trying to, uh, well, they're doing a, a, a better than they used to in mm-hmm. the past job to mm-hmm. try to help uh, people with career disruptions, but we can always do better yeah i think i mean one thing to note is that um maternity leave um payments are actually the period is really quite great um but but the amount of time you're away causes you problems so (laughs) yeah we'll we'll give with one hand but screw you over with the other so it's a it's kind of a poison chalice in a way it's it's that return to leave i think that's probably the most challenging yeah the return to work yeah linden I think we just need to dismantle the entire culture of academia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think you know that the more diverse solver. voices that we have and the greater diversity of people living different lives, doing different things, the greater um, response we will have to the big problems of the world. And I, mm. I don't think that that is being taken advantage of as much in the current system. And I think that culture is changing. Yep. It's just taking a while. Yep. Yep. Ten seconds, Stacey. What have we got? Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we're not talking about academia and we're not talking about um, uh, science. We're talking about society. Mm. And I think that we need structural changes to addressing systematic um, sexism in Australian society. Yep. Sounds good. <laughs> I uh, have to say, uh, very quickly, I remember once when I was running one of my centres, one of my colleagues stopped inviting one of my team members to meetings when she announced that she was having a baby. Oh. And I stopped attending the meetings as well as the CEO of the program and well was then asked why. And it, it really stunned me. It was like 20, no, 2007 and it stunned me that that was happening. And I, I thought, wow. And it gave an indication of this, some of the subtleness of it that occurs and how that can be progressively problematic for women in a long, long-term, uh, long-term scenario. That was one of the best employees that, that lady I was working with that I've ever worked with um, and continues to do well. So, you know... Big mistake by that individual. Anyway, folks, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Edit. You've been listening to Einstein and go Bridget, thank you very much thank for coming you. in. Olga, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Stacey. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Lyndon and also Ray, who I banished to the, uh, banished to the green room because of his gender. I'm Dr. <laughs> Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday, folks, and we will be back again next week to talk more science. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.